0: I want to tell you up front that I just need a little bit more of your time today. So I'll be preaching a little bit longer. So fasten your seatbelts, be ready. And um, we're starting a new series and we're going to be focusing on this. And usually I ask the question about what you are doing. But today is about what are we called to do as a church? What are we called to do as a church? Now, if you are new with us, um, you're going to get a clearer picture today about uh, what we are called to as a church. And if you are also somebody who's been tracking with us, checking us out, trying to learn more about who Jesus is and Christianity is all about, um, but maybe you're not quite there yet, I'm hoping today, one of my big prayers is that when I describe these things and these calls that God has on our lives, As a church that you would want to belong to God's forever family. That you would receive his grace and his peace through Jesus Christ. And so today's a day where we get to figure out as a church, as we open up God's word, what we are called to as a church. We're starting a new series in 1 Corinthians. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give one to you. Just raise your hand, and we can um, we'll give one to you. This is for you to keep. We just encourage you to read it, and um, we're going to be looking at First Corinthians chapter one, one through three, as we start this new series called "Holy Together in the Gospel." Can you say that? Can you say that? "Holy Together in the Gospel." I think there's one down here. "Holy Together in the Gospel." A study in first corinthians and if uh, you don't know where first corinthians is just look at the table of contents and uh, find first corinthians and then go to chapter one and we're going to be looking at verses one through three would you please stand with me for the reading of god's word on these short three verses this is the letter that paul wrote to the church at corinth starting in verse one paul Let me give you a little bit of background about this letter to the church at Corinth. It was written around 55 AD, 22 years after Jesus had died on a cross and rose from the grave. The Apostle Paul is writing this, and if you want to um, read the whole story about how Paul came to the city of Corinth, you can check that out today. Read um, Acts chapter 18. I'm not going to read all of that. I'm just going to highlight one verse in just a few minutes. But Acts chapter 18 tells the story how Paul came. He came as a tent maker. He was co-vocational. He was trying to um, uh, provide for himself and his needs as well as go and share the good news of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle of Christ Jesus. And so he goes, and who does he meet? He meets a ministry couple by the name of Priscilla and Aquila. And they start ministering together, and Paul goes into the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue, and he starts uh, telling them about Jesus that the Messiah has come, the long-awaited Messiah has come. And so Jesus is proclaimed, because that's what the Apostle Paul encouraged. The salvation was first to the Jews, as we read in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, which Paul and probably wrote from Corinth. And so um, Paul goes into the Jewish synagogues, and guess what happens? They reject the message. They reject the good news of Jesus Christ. So finally Paul has enough, and he's like, you know what? Your blood be on your own heads. I'm going to the Gentiles. I'm going to all the non-Jewish people in the city, and that's what he does. And guess what happens? the people start to embrace the good news of Jesus Christ. Now this is pretty amazing, because if you know anything about Corinth in that day, it was very corrupt. To act like a a Corinthian was an insult. That's because um, to act like a a Corinthian uh, meant that you were sexually immoral. You had very loose morals. And so when Paul comes and he starts proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to this wicked city, and people start embracing it, it's amazing. Now, I want us to remember this, because I know some of us at times feel really discouraged when we we see all that's going around us, and we see all the corruption, and all the immorality, and we forget that the gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful to transform any life. You know that work play, that work co-worker, that student, that fellow student that you think is so far gone. I want to tell you today, because the scriptures tell us that the life of that person can be changed by the good news of Jesus Christ. Do you believe this? We're going to, as we go through Corinthians, we're going to be finding this, a great encouragement of this. Now, I told you I wasn't going to read all of Acts chapter 18, but I want one verse in verse 17. And it's really relevant to what we're studying in 1 Corinthians 1. Here's what we read. Remember I told you that, that Paul went to the uh, synagogue and they rejected him. And so what ends up happening is um, a big, uh, I'll start in verse 12. It says, when Galileo, the, um, when Galileo, the proconsul of Achaish, Okay, sorry, Achaia, the Jews made an un- united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. Okay, so the context is, is the, um, the Jewish people not only rejected Paul, but they bring a lawsuit. They're bringing him to trial amongst these Gentiles, these, these Roman uh, magistrates. And if you jump down to Acts chapter 18, verse 17, uh, as Paul's speaking, it says this, they all seized... Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galio paid no attention to any of this. Now this is very important because what did I just read to you in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1? Who is writing this letter? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and what does it say? Our brother Sosthenes. But if this is the same Sosthenes and there's good... There's, there's, we have good um, scholarship to believe that it is. Think about this. The ruler who brought Paul to trial, who brought a lawsuit against Paul, gets beaten up, and then sometime after that, he gives his life to Jesus Christ, and now he's a brother. Again, cannot the gospel transform any life? Yeah. The answer is yes. Yes. This should be such encouragement to us. We don't know much more about Sosthenes, but he's now a brother. So again, I want to remind you, that person that is so hardened and maybe opposed to the gospel, ready to bring a lawsuit against you and your Christianity, Christ can transform. Over the last year, our church has been attacked four times online by certain people about our views on sexuality and gender. We don't make a big deal of that. But I am hoping and praying, and I hope you will join with me in this, to declare that God can transform their lives. As we share the love of Christ, we respond in kindness, just like Sosthenes. Could there be more Sosthenes in Cambridge? Amen? Amen? So this is a little bit of the background Paul um, is opposed, but a church starts because of, he's made disciples and there gets to be enough of a critical mass of disciples and a church is started. And then Paul, because he's an apostle, he feels the call to share the good news of Jesus Christ at another location. He's actually on a missionary journey when he's, he's being this tent maker in Corinth. And finally he leaves, he leaves the church in good hands. There's elders raised up. And we see this on this map of of Paul's uh, journey. The next place he goes, you can see if Corinth is kind of over on the left hand of the screen. And Corinth is over there just close to Athens. And then Paul goes across um, the Mediterranean to Ephesus. And this is where he's actually writing 1 Corinthians, this letter to the Corinthians. There's lots of problems I think uh, Warren Wearsby, the late great pastor Warren Wearsby, says it best. He summarizes this as far as the church of Corinth. The church of Corinth was uh, defiled, it was divided, and it was disgraced. This church was in poor shape. And Paul loved this church. And this helps us understand why Paul is writing to them because he helped start it and they had lots of questions. And so he's answering these questions and he cared for this church and he just didn't leave them on their own. He wanted to answer their questions and care for them. And there was this interdependence. What a reminder that is the church that we are connected to other churches and we need to help. And we've planted a church and we continue to love them as they have now become self-sustaining. And we're also reminded that The power of the gospel can change and give answers, and we can live wisely in this world. Now, I want to give a little bit more background to 1 Corinthians. I want to show this video. This is why I asked for extra time today, so you can get a a clear picture of what 1 Corinthians is all about. Let's watch this video called The Bible Project and um, understanding a little bit more about 1 Corinthians.
1: Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, written to a church community that Paul knew really well. Corinth was a major port city in the ancient world and had lots of temples to Greek and Roman gods. It was a big economic center. And so Paul strategically came here as a missionary. He spent a year and a half there getting to know people, talking to them about Jesus. And a whole bunch of people became followers of Jesus and formed a church community. You can read about all of this in Acts chapter 18. So after a while, Paul moved on to start churches in other cities and he started getting reports that things were not going well at all back at the church in Corinth. It was plagued by all kinds of problems and that's why he wrote this letter. It's broken up into five main parts along with a final greeting. And these five sections correspond to five main problems that Paul is addressing. And so the letter reads like a collection of short essays on different topics, but there are these core ideas that unite all of the pieces together. So here's what he does in each section. He describes the problem, but then he always responds to that problem with some part of the story of the gospel, which is the good news about Jesus. And he shows how they're actually not living out what they say they believe. And so this letter is all about learning to think about every area of life through the lens of the gospel. So let's dive in and see how he does it. In chapters 1 through 4, the problem is that there are these divisions in the church. There are some other teachers who had come through town since Paul left, a guy named Apollos and then Peter. And people had picked their favorite teacher and then became groupies around that leader and then started to talk bad and disrespect people who favored another leader or teacher. And so Paul, his response to this is kind of sarcastic and sharp. He says, you have to be kidding me, right? The church is not a popularity contest. The church is a community of people who are centered around Jesus. Its leaders and its teachers are simply servants of Jesus. So while you might prefer one leader more than another, it's not worth dividing over and certainly not speaking poorly about each other. The center of the church is Jesus and the good news about who he is and what he's done. In chapters five through seven, Paul addresses some problems related to sex. There were a number of people sleeping around in the church. One guy with his stepmother, a number of other people still worshipping at the local temples to greek gods and sleeping with the prostitutes who worked there not only that but there were people in the church who were saying that this was all just fine they said hey we're free in christ god's grace is bottomless right it's fine paul says it's not fine. And with the gospel in hand, he shows just how wrong-headed this kind of thinking is. He says, remember, first of all, Jesus died for your sins, including the ruin of broken relationships that's caused by sexual misconduct. And so if you're a Christian, sexual integrity is one of the main ways that we respond to Jesus's love and grace. Paul also reminds them that just as Jesus was physically raised from the dead, So our bodies will be raised from the dead, which means this. If your body is being redeemed by Jesus now and in the future, then what you do with your body matters. It matters a lot. And it's not yours to do whatever you want with. Paul's being super clear. Being a follower of Jesus involves no compromise when it comes to sexual integrity. In chapters 8 through 10, the issue is about food, but not just food preferences like do you like or dislike a certain food. The issue the Corinthians were divided over is meat that came from animals sacrificed in the local temples to Greek and Roman gods. And there was a split between the Jewish and non-Jewish Christians about how to respond to this issue. And once again, Paul appeals to some core ideas from the gospel. He says our allegiance, first and foremost, is to Jesus as Lord, not to any other gods. And so if you're in a situation where there's meat that's been dedicated to another god... And there are people around who might watch you and conclude, oh, look, hey, Christians worship Jesus and they can worship other gods too. Paul says if that's the scenario, don't eat the meat. Your loyalty is to Jesus and you should love those people more than yourself and not mislead them. But Paul quickly qualifies this and says, listen, as Christians, we believe God is the creator of all things, including that animal. And the temple idols, we believe, are just pieces of wood and stone. So if there's no one around who's going to misunderstand your actions and you're hungry, eat up. You're free as a new human in Christ to follow your conscience in these kind of debatable matters. So what makes it okay in one situation to eat but not in the other? The core principle is love. Love will deny itself and look out for the well-being of other people. And love, God's love, is at the core of the gospel. It's what Jesus did when he died for us, and so Paul says it's what Christians should do for other people. In chapters 11 through 14, Paul moves on and addresses problems in their weekly worship gathering. There were some people who were having really powerful spiritual experiences in the gathering, and so they would start praying out loud in unknown languages there were other people who might start sharing a teaching or a word from God and then someone would get up and interrupt them because they wanted to share. And it all was really chaotic and it was distracting people, especially visitors, from hearing the gospel. So in these chapters, Paul helps them think first of all about the purpose of this gathering to help them see what kind of behaviors are appropriate. He says, the gathering is a place where God's spirit should be working through everybody and it should happen in a unified way. So he develops this cool metaphor about the church as a human body. It's one, but it has all these different parts. And each part serves a unique and important role. So he goes on to name a whole bunch of things that the spirit does through all these different people, all for the building up of the church. That's a key phrase in these chapters. And Paul concludes that the highest value in the gathering should be a concept central to the gospel, God's love. And love is a key word in these chapters too. Love will compel each person in the gathering to use their role to serve and seek the well-being of others. So Paul applies all this to the Corinthians' problems. Some people think the purpose of the gathering is to have intense spiritual experiences or to get a chance to speak their mind. And Paul says, listen, I'm a big fan of powerful experiences of prayer, but if it distracts other people or freaks them out, I should stop it because I'm loving myself more than I'm loving those people. The gathering around Jesus should be orderly so everybody can learn and sing and worship and hear God speaking to them. The last problem Paul addresses is the issue of Jesus' resurrection and the future hope of Jesus' followers. There were some people in the church who were saying that the idea of resurrection is ridiculous and doesn't really matter to being a Christian. And Paul reacts to this big time. He begins by saying that the resurrection is an indispensable part of the gospel. We believe in it because of the hundreds of eyewitnesses that saw Jesus alive in a physical body after being publicly executed by the Romans. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Paul says, then his death was meaningless. We are all still lost in our sin and selfishness. We should just stop being Christians. Paul then shows in detail how the resurrection was Jesus' victory over death and evil, how it's a source of life and power for us now in the present, and how it's a promise of future hope for the whole world. It's because of the resurrection that we have a reason to be unified around Jesus. It's the reason we have motivation for sexual integrity. It's the source of power for loving other people more than ourselves. And ultimately, it's our hope for victory over death. And so, Paul concludes, we do believe Jesus was raised from the dead. Which means this, the gospel is not just moral advice or a recipe for private spirituality. It's an announcement about Jesus that opens up a whole new reality. And that's what 1 Corinthians is all about, seeing every part of life through the lens of that gospel.
0: Isn't that helpful? I'm very excited about what we will get to do over these next few months. And let's continue just to look at the power of the gospel through the lens and and what our church is called to. Here here are four things that the church is called to, that we as a church are called to. The first is that we would represent Jesus. That we would represent Jesus. We see this in verse 1. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. This is so encouraging. Sometimes, um, maybe this is true in your life, sometimes my wife will represent me in uh, an event that I can't be there because I have other commitments. In, In that same way, we are Christ's bride as the church, and we are to represent Christ to the world. We represent his holiness, his message of good news, his grace, his peace, and Paul is called by the will of God to be an apostle, literally a sent one, a missionary of Christ Jesus, and we, as a church, are called to that as well. In fact, we have specific callings. My friend John Thompson, in his book, his recent book, Perseverance, talks about four types of ministry callings. The apostle Paul was called, and I want to walk through what how he was called. and And the first, uh, the first type of ministry calling is what John calls no choice. You have no choice in the matter. The second is through spiritual gifts. The third is through given by family, and then the fourth is affirmed by the local church. Let me just quickly walk through this, and as we look at Paul's calling, it will help us to understand maybe our own ministry callings, and we can walk through this. Um, The first thing I want us to remember is that, uh, that God sometimes calls some people without seemingly any choice in the matter. I once heard a person say to me, well, God is a gentleman, and he doesn't force anybody. Well, I don't think the Apostle Paul would say that. And here's why. Look at Acts chapter 9, and we're going to see what Paul was doing. Paul hated the church. Acts chapter 9, if you have your Bibles, it's, I think, on the screen as well. And we're going to see... It's going to say Saul. He's later called Paul. Here's what it says in, in Acts chapter 9. This is his calling that we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, what's that mean? The way is the, the, those who follow Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so those who are Christians can sometimes call those who belong to the way. And so he goes on and says, uh, Luke says in verse 2, If he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Paul didn't have much choice in the matter, did he? This is a this is dramatic calling. And it was a call to salvation, but it was also a call to ministry at the same time. Gordon Fee in his commentary talks about in 1 Corinthians, there seems to almost be at times a blurring between election and vocation. And Paul didn't have a choice in the matter. Now some of you have felt this way. You were called to serve in a certain capacity, and you felt if if you didn't do that, then you would be in disobedience to God. That's how I feel. Uh, Since I was years old, I always wanted to be a pastor, and, and I wanted to, because my dad was a, fa- a pastor, my grandfather, and, and then as I grew a little bit older, I saw the shadow side of church, and I just want to say this to you, okay? If you're here today, and you've been burned by the church, I have great compassion for you. I know that deeply. No group of people on earth has loved me more than the church, And no group of people has hurt me more than a church. And I understand that. As a pastor's kid, I saw the shadow side of church. And yet, as I continued to journey in life, and I love sports, but I saw how as some of the demise of that, and I got hurt in sports as well from people who would lie to me and, and break my trust, I continued to pursue what God wanted me for my life. And so by age 16 and 17, I just had such a passion for the Lord and a passion for a church. I tried to serve in every ministry I could. And by age 17, the local church was coming alongside my home church and saying, I think you should be a pastor. And I knew that God had called me. And I applied to one school, Moody Bible Institute, to seek training. And I've been a pastor As soon as I graduated from Moody Bible Institute, I had no choice in the matter. I'm called. Now, John Thompson, my friend, says there's a danger in getting that type of calling because you can become proud about it and you can look down on others who don't have that overt call. And that's why today I want to say that all these calls that we're describing, spiritual gifts given by family, affirmed by the local church, they all are equal, they all matter. Let's talk about quickly the spiritual gifts calling. Maybe some of you have this. Think about Paul's protege, Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. We see this. Paul says this: I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois, and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I'm reminding you to fan into th- Flame, the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands, for the Spirit of God gave us, does not that God gave us, does not make us timid, but gives us power and love and self-discipline. Each one of us has been given a spiritual gift if we are a follower of Jesus Christ. And these spiritual gifts are are heaven-given. They're given by God as power to be able to serve Him. Many of us have talents, and, and those are different than spiritual gifts. In fact, sometimes that, that, um, those talents, you have to actually surrender to the Lord and say, Lord, I want these actually to be animated, not naturally, but, uh, but supernaturally by the Holy Spirit so that they're only used for you. You release them back because the spiritual gift is something given by the Holy Spirit after you come to faith in Christ. And if you're not using your spiritual gift, maybe some of this describes you, you'll be burnt out. You'll lack joy. You'll lack power of the Holy Spirit. You'll lack influence. Maybe that's why some of you are frustrated today. I don't know. Paul Tripp puts it this way, Pastor Paul Tripp, if you doubt your spiritual gifts, you are doubting the one who gave you those spiritual gifts. God never calls us to a task that he also doesn't empower us to do in the power of the Holy Spirit. So spiritual gifts, it's a great calling. And each one of us has that. A third is that we might be given by family. Now, I said this at Art's funeral yesterday, and I want to reinforce this This by the late, great um, evangelist Billy Graham. God has no grandchildren. Each person has to individually be responsible to give their life to Jesus Christ. But parents, as we heard this dedication today of Davis, um, we can give children over to the Lord. And that doesn't mean that they are saved. We can't guarantee them for heaven if we baptize them as babies as we confirm them. They have to come to faith in Jesus Christ themselves. Which begs the question, have you? Have you given your life to Christ yourself? Have you individually done that? Or are you just actually not a Christian, but you're living off of your family's faith? Today can be the day of salvation. And yet, our parents can put us in a position to receive God's grace in a special way. We saw that in this verse that we just read from, um, from Paul describing Timothy and from his grandmother and mother. Another example, a great one, is from in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 28. And and Pastor Collery mentioned this about Hannah. She struggled with infertility. And, and she, she said, Lord, um, if you give me this child, I'm going to give him back to you. And this is what it says at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 28. And when the NIV, it says, I have given him to the Lord. And as long as he lives, he is given to the Lord and he worshiped there. And so there are some of us who have been prayed for by our parents and our grandparents. And it's part of our calling. Now let me take a time out just for a moment. There are some in our community here in our church today, maybe this describes you, who come from a culture where you have high expectations put on you by your family. That you are to go a certain direction, to live and be this certain person, have this certain vocation. Here's what I want you to ask instead of maybe fighting this, I want you to ask this question. Is your heavenly father, has your heavenly father used the desires or put the desires in your family for you that are actually his desires for you? Does that make sense? Maybe God put those desires in your family and prayed over those so long ago. And maybe that will help you against fighting that calling in your life. Hannah, gave Samuel over to the Lord. So that's a, a third type of, of calling. And then there's a, a fourth one, and that's affirmation of the local church. And often all of these, these types of calling can be um, in, in conjunction with one another. Remember I told you that, uh, I already read to you that Paul had this dramatic calling on the road to Damascus. But if you go ahead to Acts chapter 13, verses one through three, we read this. We already know that Paul's called to the Gentiles, but now that we're in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Mananae, and a member of the court of Herod, a tet- the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, like, just like today, our service, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. The local church affirmed that calling. That's why we can't just say, well, I have this gift uh, without the other people in the local church actually saying, yes, we see that in you. And that's one of our roles as leaders to do is to affirm and to say, yes, we see this in you and call that out in you. So our church is called to represent Jesus. And to use these callings that we have. Do you know what you're called to? If not, talk to our elders afterwards. We'd love to talk to you further. Our church is also called by God to be saints holy together like Jesus. To be saints together holy like Jesus. This means that we are called to do life together. Look at verse 2 in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified. That means to be made holy, to be like Christ, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who are in every place upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. I'll get to that in a moment. But the first part is that we are called to be saints together holy like Jesus. Often you think that you're supposed to do life just you and Jesus, but it's not that way. You are called to do this together as a church. Now we at a church, we break off into smaller groups so that we can know and we can do life together. We can care for each other. We can pray for each other. It's hard to know everyone in a group this size. And so we encourage you to be a part of a small group. You can do by, by filling out one of the connect cards. You can talk to Pastor Jason afterwards. But the goal in all this is that we would grow together, that we would become holy. We would, we would be more like Christ. See, holiness is a cooperative work with the Holy Spirit living inside us and we together as a community project Now, I need to say something to you that's probably the hardest thing I've ever said to you as a church. But it's also maybe one of the kindest things. Shortly after I arrived here, somebody outside of our church came who knew the church very well and told me that temple lacks leadership. And I was like, what are you talking about? We have... We have a lot of leaders. And over these 12 years, I discovered that that person was correct. We have an amazing amount of servants in our church. And why I'm telling you that is that's hard to hear, isn't it? And it's the truth. And one of my roles is to define reality. It's also one of the kindest things I could tell you because we don't have to stay like that. There's an opportunity for us to grow. Mardell mentioned this at the front of the service. I'm going to say it again. Next Saturday morning, man, I'm inviting you to bring your Bibles, and we are going to open up God's Word, and you're going to tell me what you're reading, and you're going to come with your questions, and we're going to disciple, and we're going to learn how to take God's Word and tell others, your family, others in the community. And I'm committed to this for the the next three years to help grow men in our church. And I got to tell you, and I appreciate this feedback. I've heard secondhand from a number of you that that's pretty tough because Saturday mornings you like to sleep in. And you know what? I like to sleep in too. And I am all for rest. But, and and some of you have legitimate reasons, like you're working so hard all week and you just want some time with family. That's why it's from six to eight. Come back and make breakfast. Be with your family. But women, could you back me up on this? I, I think the thing that you would love the most is to see your husbands and kids, your dads, to know God's word and be able to teach you God's word. I'm committed to helping us disciple, be, be made disciples, so that we can have leaders. And it's evident when we have an abundance of staff to have to fill in those gaps, when we take every year and we, we struggle to find elders. Now, this discipleship group doesn't mean that you're going to necessarily be an elder. I'm just trying to teach you so that you can, I can say to you, uh, can you explain this passage to somebody else? That's all I want. And can you imagine what would happen if that occurred? So, listen, if you're tired, here's what I'm going to say. Remember when we saw in the video that your body belongs to the Holy Spirit? I'm going to tell you something that I've done for the last 25 years, and it's going to sound hyper-spiritual, but it's not. I realize that God owns my body. And so what I do is I try to go to bed at a decent time every night, and I say, God, you wake me up in the morning. And sometimes it's at 3 o'clock in the morning, and sometimes it's at 6 o'clock in the morning. But for 25 years, I haven't used an alarm clock because I'm trusting God. You know what I need to have the energy and the rest, and I've got to work from rest. And what if God gives you an extra ability to be able to have enough sleep and still come to the discipleship group? Okay, that might have been my church emptying sermon for today (laughs) but this is part of being holy together called holy together here's the third calling our church is called to be praying in the name of jesus christ that's what we see look at the back half of verse two who in every place call upon the name of our lord jesus christ both their lord and ours we want to be a church who prays. And we want to join the saints across the globe who are praying. Those who are interceding. Theologians call this Catholicity. It's not; It means the universal church. It doesn't mean that the Roman Catholic church. It's talking about the fact that we are part of this global prayer movement. Who call upon the name of the Lord. And I've experienced that at times. Maybe you have too. Maybe you're prompted to pray for something globally. Or maybe you go to a, 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 a gathering where people are praying for the world. A few years back, Lori and I and some other um, leaders, we went to Brooklyn Tabernacle Church in Brooklyn, New York. And the high point in that church is not actually Sunday morning. It's actually Tuesday morning. or it's a Tuesday night prayer meeting. In fact, to get into that prayer meeting, you have to wait an hour ahead of time. You need to be an hour there ahead of time to get to, to prayer meeting. And there's thousands praying. And they storm heaven with their prayers. And I distinctly remember, we were praying. They, every week, they pray for a country. And at that time, they picked Iran. At that time, there weren't, we weren't seeing a lot of people come to faith in Christ. And do you remember, and I hope I don't butcher this name. Remember when President uh, Mahoud uh, Ahmad in Nenejad? Remember that name? I can't even remember. And I remember Pastor Jimbala saying, Lord, please save this president or take him out. Well, have you heard much about him lately? And guess what's happened in Iran? It's one of the most explosive church happenings. People are coming to faith in Christ in the world today. Because of, I believe in part, because of those prayers. We as a church are called to prayer. We want to be a house of prayer. That's why we pray in our small groups. That's why next Saturday I invite you to the ladies prayer retreat. It's going to be great, right Mary? We have a a week from Saturday, we have another Partners in Prayer retreat. We pray on Wednesdays at Prayer Encounter. We're going to have a prayer summit in October. We want to be a praying church because... That is where the power is, is if we call upon the name of the Lord, he's the one who does the work. So come to prayer. That's the fourth calling, our third calling. Here's the fourth calling. The fourth calling is this. The grace, as a church, we're called by God to the grace and peace from Jesus. This just means you can't earn salvation. It's by his grace and grace alone. So as we conclude, what has God been speaking to you about? What has God been speaking to us as a church? What are you called to as part of the larger vision of church? Maybe for some of you, for the first time, you've heard the fact that it's through Jesus Christ dying on a cross and rising from the grave that you can experience his grace and his peace. Maybe you need to receive Christ. You can afterwards with with our elders. Or someone you came with. Or just in the quietness of your heart saying, God, I surrender my life to Jesus. Please come into my life. Take over. Others of you maybe need to repent. And you're called to this holiness together. You've been trying to do it on your own. Or there's some area in your life that's a, that's a roadblock. And there needs to be repentance on, on your heart and in your, your life. Others of you, maybe you're saying, you know what, I, I've really lagged in prayer. And I need to start coming to prayer encounter. I need to start coming to a small group. I need to start praying. I need to come to ladies' prayer retreat. Still others of you, maybe you have been on the sidelines and you haven't been representing Christ and you need to have a, a, a renewed boldness. Using your gifts. Some of you say, I don't even know what my gift is. Come, we'd love to talk to you further about this. As a church, God is calling us to these things—to be like Jesus, to represent Jesus, to be like Jesus, to call on Jesus, and to experience His grace and peace. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer here. Father, we just thank you for, thank you for your great calls. And Lord, I pray as a church. Anything that I've said that, Lord, is not of you, I just ask you, it would be forgotten about. But things, Lord, that are from you, you would be remembered. And Lord, I pray that we would be act, and acted upon and we would live out these callings. Would we represent you so well? Would you be like Christ? Lord, would we, would we pray to you and, and never stop ceasing to pray to you? And will we never get far from your grace and peace and proclaiming that to others? And we pray this in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. And God's people said, Amen and amen.